Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment of your time to let you know we have finally upgraded our website www.theguiltpodcast.com. It now features a lot more information and is just in general much more useful and looks better. Make sure you get over there and sign up to our new email newsletter, which will be going up free and will keep you updated on the podcast and the cases as they move forward. And the fancy new website design is courtesy of our friends over at Medio Street Media, who are ready to help take your business to the next level. You see, there are countless ways to market your business online. And yeah, that can be overwhelming. But it's not about doing everything. It's about doing the right things. At Medio Street, they take what's often seen as black magic and make it practical. With custom marketing plans, driving leads for businesses in any industry, with any budget. You can check out their toolbox, including web design, social media marketing, SEM, SEO, video production, and more at Mediostreet.com. Conversations are always free, so reach out today to get started. That's Mediostreet.com, M-E-D-I-O, street.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. On the last episode of guilt and they were just at the back of it repacking it and and i remember making the comment that it was for us it felt quite a chilly morning and she only had shorts and a, a, a t-shirt on by this tree here yes and um they were there and the, they were standing this side of the car you know the Okay. Pair of them. We're standing this side of the car, looking out. You can you can see Mare Island and all the other islands and so on. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just um, it can just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt.
here we are, for a second time. The final official episode of this season of Guilt. Only this time, there will not be any further episodes other than covering our upcoming searches and any future updates on the case. Like I said, I'll keep working on this case. And there are some significant recent developments, but I just won't be turning these into podcast episodes at this stage. As I mentioned in the last episode, I attended David Tamahedi's recent two-day appeal hearing at the Court of Appeal in Wellington. I was given permission to record audio for the podcast, so I'll be editing those two days into two additional episodes released over the next two weeks. But these will be subscriber only. You can subscribe on Apple through your app, or for other platforms, you'll find the Acast Plus link in the description of this episode. In this episode, you're going to hear new witness evidence that I've been in possession of for some time. And while it seems there will always be a shroud of mystery about elements of this case, I believe we can finally start to get a picture of what really took place in April of 1989. In this episode, I'm going to be introducing some new hearsay evidence. Given the historical nature of this case, it should come as no surprise that many key witnesses have died. And as such, hearsay evidence is all we have available. To be clear, it doesn't mean it's not true, and I wouldn't include it unless I believed the witnesses telling me were credible, but we must always bear in mind that it is secondhand. Remember, everyone is to be presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Let's get into it. If there's one thing that's caused the most confusion in this case for me, it's the car. When Darren Old first suggested to me all those months ago that the car police recovered was not actually Heidi Urbans, but had been switched, I was sceptical. I mean, surely not. This isn't a movie, this is real life, and these things just don't happen. But as I progressively found new witnesses and new details emerged, the possibility that a switch may have really occurred started to carry some water. So here in the final episode, I'm going to cover all the known information we have about the car, so you can decide yourself what you think might have happened. And what better place to start than with the car itself? Today because you might not quite believe it. But with the help of a listener, I found it. For his own privacy, I've altered the current owner's voice. So I said, it's going in a documentary. And he said, right, we'll pick it up tomorrow. And I picked it up and it was going. Uh, And we because we didn't want to push it around from one um, for a shot. So we wanted to be able to drive it for a shot. In a somewhat strange set of circumstances, the Subaru wagon recovered by the police after being abandoned in Auckland was sitting in police storage in 1996 when a New Zealand documentary filmmaker, Brian Bruce, inquired as to whether he could use it in a documentary about the case. 
and perhaps surprisingly, the police said yes. Uh, and um, and so um, uh, after that, it sat in the police station, and we were, what are we going to do? And they said, take the bloody thing away. Uh, so um, they didn't need it anymore. So once every couple of years, I put CRC on things and put petrol in and put a new battery in and, and drive it for another week, park up under the trees again. When I realised I'd managed to track down the car, I was ecstatic. Could this hold the key to finally putting to bed this mystery of switch or no switch? But sadly, it's not meant to be. As I'm told, it has sat outside under trees in the harsh New Zealand weather for the last 27 years. And today, it's rusted more or less completely away, with only a few pieces still remaining. Yeah, and, and so that so that car right now is not even recognisable as a car, is it completely? No, it's, it's no longer, no, yeah. You'll oh. find a couple, couple of wheels with, with flat tyres, uh, sitting under a bush. Oh, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't recognise it. It's completely covered with rubbish. So stuff rub, dropped on top, and I was going to have a fire one day and have a burner. Bugger, I was hoping if that car was still in one piece, I was going to come and look at it. Uh, I'm going to walk down there now um, and have a look, but I don't think there's anything um, that would make it re- recognisable. Um, the only thing I did keep was the plastic grill that was, now let's see, where the hell did I put that? The plastic grill that came off the front of the Subaru. What the hell did I do with that? And it wasn't white one. It wasn't white one, if I can remember. It was cream. cream. I just suddenly thought, it's not white. Yeah, and uh, then there was a plastic grill, a plastic grill that came off the front. And I, I put it away somewhere. I'm looking at the Subaru now, and it's just got a, um, what have we got here? We've got uh, two wheels, what's left of the, the, back, the back boot, uh, back part with the two mud guards, and a rusty piece of deck, and uh, a, a dip underneath. Uh, a different niche. Otherwise, uh, you wouldn't know it was a Tabari. Yeah, look, um, uh, what the hell is that? I'm looking at that. I'm actually looking at the Tabari and his phone. Its uh, registration number was HF8593. Yeah, yeah, that's the plate. That's the plate. And it was cream. Yeah. And uh, and the number plate is aluminium, so it hasn't rusted. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's a bit of history you've got right there. So I've, I'm looking at the moment, uh, a piece of chrome that says Subaru. Underneath that is uh, HF8593. And then on one side of it is uh, a four-wheel drive uh four-wheel drive drive sticker, uh, chrome, and um, it's funny that it's sitting there still, that part of it's still there. The rest of it's all gone. 
Are the bull bars still there? Bull bars uh, on the front. There, uh, yeah, there was a bull bars on the front of the thing of it. Would it be it's- possible to just take a couple photos on your phone and email them to me? Would that be? Yeah, and I'll take a photograph of the um, okay. the the back boot and uh, the the arse end of the Sabari. Yeah, anything you can get, a, anything that's kind of remaining and half decent. Yeah, well, uh, I'm an, I'm actually quite surprised to find uh, the boot. A part of the boot still looking at me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Awesome. It sounds good. There's something quite surreal about speaking to a person on the phone who is literally standing under a tree, picking through the remains of the Subaru we've heard so much about. Immediately, there was one thing that jumped out to me, that according to the current owner, it was cream, not white. When I spoke to James Turner, He said their father did own a Subaru wagon. But he also said the same thing. It was cream, not white. However, I've seen the documentary made by Brian Bruce, which features the very car now lying in a heap. And it looks white, or very close to it. Although the film is old and shot in sepia colour tone, which may make it look whiter than it is. But as you can imagine, whether it's just a pile of metal or not, I was very keen to see it. But the tree under which the Subaru now calls home is in an extremely remote part of New Zealand. So instead, I waited patiently for the photos. Which never came. And sadly, much like Ben Pointer with the pack, the current owner of the car, with no explanation, suddenly decided he wouldn't even send me a photo of the car's remains. So there the mystery lays. So then, what of the car? What do we know? We know that Darren Old said he saw Donald Turner changing the license plates on two white Subarus on the Taikato property. At the same time, he saw David Turner leading a distressed-looking Heidi Parkinen by the elbow. In his official police statement, Darren Lindsay said that he saw a white Subaru parked no more than 100 metres away from where Urban's body would eventually be found. He said there was a backpack on the back seat and a camera. He remembered seeing the word Subaru written on the side of the car. But in the statement, he made no mention of seeing bull bars. When I spoke to Darren Lindsay, he said there were photos spread out on the back seat and that he believed the car was there because they were taking photos. In Linda Millen's diary, however, we got a different story. She wrote of speaking to Darren and him telling her they followed the car up into the forest after hearing it smashing into the front gate. He said they had taken items from the car, including Heidi's tapes, He also said the car was parked in a second location the next day and that it looked spooky. We've seen that photos of the vehicle recovered by the police and those taken during Heidi and Urban's trip of New Zealand don't match, as the one recovered oddly has black paint in a number of spots that we don't see in earlier photos. Finally, James Turner confirmed that yes, their father did own a Subaru station wagon but that it didn't have bull bars 
and it was cream, not straight white. When I told James the theory about the cars being switched, he said, I'd believe it. It's also worth noting that at the time of the investigation, police flew a tyre salesman from the South Island to view the vehicle to confirm that they were indeed the tyres he sold to the Swedes on their trip of New Zealand. So what can be made of all this? Were the vehicles switched as Darren Old claims? And was the real car buried? Like I said in an earlier episode, without access to either vehicle, I just don't have the evidence to confirm this either way. But let's consider this. According to Linda's diary, Darren Lindsay claims to have seen the white Subaru parked in the forest on two consecutive days. In his police statement, he says he was pretty sure it was a Monday when he saw it parked 100 metres from Urban's body. He told Linda that the next day they saw it parked by the second gate, near the swamp. If we can accept that the first day was Monday, then the second day would be Tuesday the 11th of April. But there's a problem here. If you'll recall, on Tuesday 11th of April, David Tamahedi was driving the Swedes vehicle around the Coromandel on a tiki tour with three tourists. So it's simply not possible the vehicle could be in two places at once. But of course, it doesn't have to be. The vehicle parked up in the forest for those two days could quite simply be the other Subaru. Possibly set up to look like the Swedes. Remember Darren Lindsay made no mention of bull bars in his police statement. And the items that he recalled seeing in the car, like the small backpack with red piping and the camera, they were never found and the tourist Tamahedi was driving on the tiki tour at the same time, said the car had no luggage, just a fishing rod and a bucket. Darren Old told me that he remembers Darren Lindsay and Willie Taikato taking items from this car parked up in the bush. I was contacted by a member of the Taikato family, who will remain anonymous, but told me that Willie, who was only a young man at the time of the murders, once told them something that I might find interesting. They said, In 2016, on one of my trips home, we stopped in Tokoroa. And Willie says to me, Yeah, cuz, we were told not to go back to that car. But I snuck back that night, and I took the gears out of the car. And I think there was a camera and a backpack or something like that. I'm not sure. And I go, What's that for? And he goes, Oh, you know, those tourists that went missing. Sadly, this person wasn't aware what Willie was referring to at the time and asked no further questions. But clearly this was something that had played on his mind all these years. And I believe answers the question of whether they did steal items from the car. But the more important detail... Willie said they were told not to go back to that car. One sentence, so much meaning. Who could be telling them this, and why? I will add that I was contacted by a former work colleague of Willie, who said that Willie had always been adamant 
that the police got the wrong man. So we can assume it wasn't David Tamahedi that told him not to go back to that car. Like so many important witnesses in this case, Willie Taikato has sadly passed away. And I'll add that he's not to be confused with another unrelated Willie Taikato, who was murdered in 2007 after a drug deal gone bad. Willie was not a permanent resident of the farm and was only visiting in 1989 for a short period of time. It's also important to note that the Taikato family are generational owners of this farm. And at the time in April of 1989, the only family members present were the elderly Pat Taikato and his daughter Glennis, who was the long-term partner of Donald Turner Sr., who was effectively the manager of the farm. When it comes to the car, it's my belief that both Donald Turner Sr. Subaru and the Swede Subaru were involved in their murders. But which car was which, we'll likely never know. In a somewhat strange twist, some months ago, as I was leaving the Parakawai Valley, I stopped near the bend in the river Darren believes the car was buried. And here I got to speaking to a man that made a startling revelation. There was a car buried in the riverbank. How does he know, I ask? Well, because they pulled it out. And it's sitting only a few hundred metres away from us. A local did say to me that there was um, a rumour that, or a theory, Mm. that the car that Tamahiri was picked up in the Subaru wasn't the same. Mm. And that the other one was dumped here in the river. Well, there's actually uh, the remains of the wreckage is on the bank along the road. Just down here? Yeah. Um, like, could I go down there and see it right now? Well, pretty well. From the road? You can see it from the road. Uh, it's, there's not much left of what it was, but whether it's a Subaru or not, I mean... You what know, kind? Of, can you tell if it's uh, a station wagon? or? Uh, it's all crumpled up. Uh, it's all things like crushes. Oh. I picked something up. Uh, one of, or looked at something like the diff to see if it had anything like Subaru. Oh, so you've actually checked it out? Yeah. Um, but I couldn't see any brand make, and, and it could have been any old car dumped in the river. I didn't. Like, you know, you got that flat on the other side of those yeah. two little huts. Yeah. You go down to the end of that, and then it's just a few metres along, sitting up on the bank. It's just a bit of steel. Doesn't even look like a car. No, it's okay. a total, total wreck. But whether that was a Sabari, like, you know, but, I've seen rural places, a lot of cars go into the river. Can you get out of there? Yep. Is that a yeah, car? Is that fence on? No, that is, that is, that's a car. It's got springs and stuff on it. Fucking hell. I mean, you feel like a proper car person, they'd probably be able to look at it and tell you, wouldn't they? Yeah. I didn't see the street thoroughly for any kind of identification, but I looked at something so far rusted. Um, I suppose. It is, didn't it? Whitish. That's white, alright. Uh, yeah, if we could find some. 
Oh, there's green here. But is that, that's a bit of green in here. But is that on the inside? Is that a glove box? Oh yeah, that would be the glove box, yeah. plastic. You'd be able to tell from the survival with that. Yeah. Here's a... Now there's a button. The green, I mean, that green makes me start to think it's probably not the car because the car was white, but could you have a different colour underneath or something like that maybe? I don't know. You just need that one part that has a... that has a bloody identification, eh? Oh, here we go. Ford. Ford, oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. oh that, that, that solves that. That solves that. Fuck yeah. Oh, it's, hey, it's, it's worth checking everything, though, because you never know. And just because this car's not a Subaru, it doesn't mean a Subaru didn't go in here at some point. You need to have a good imagination to see this crushed pile of steel as a car. But as I get down and take a closer look, I can see the remains of green paint here and there. So it's definitely not a white Subaru. Eventually, I do find a belt buckle that confirms the vehicle to be a Ford. A green Ford that at some point in the past, someone has decided to crush and bury in the riverbank. As this man tells me, cars go into the rivers and lakes all the time in New Zealand. Sometimes for nefarious reasons, but not always. The fact it's a green Ford is interesting, given that Christine Hymona states she saw a man driving past this exact spot in a dark green car, with who she believes was Heidi Parkinen. Could it be this car that was buried? And not the Subaru. I will briefly add on this point regarding Christine's evidence that since her interview was released, I've been contacted by a number of people connected to her and this case, who believe she is not being 100% truthful about what she saw. And I'm also going to add one observation of my own. When I first met Christine, we sat down and she told me the story of her and Donald arriving at the batch, seeing the green car with the blonde woman and then leaving the next day. She initially told me that her and Donald left in the morning together. But I didn't get this on record. She then changed her story to say she left instead with David Turner and his girlfriend Ange the following morning and they went to Auckland. And this is the story she stuck with since. But Donald has always maintained that he left with Christine the morning after they stayed at the batch. So why the discrepancy? A simple slip of the tongue when Christine first told me the story. Or is there something more? We know Christine was there. But are we getting the full story? It's also important to note that in her initial statement to police, when she was tracked down by Detective Del Reed, she then reached back out to them off her own back, 
claiming she wanted to clarify details in reference to the statement Donald Turner had made to police. A statement that was obviously implicating his brother David Turner as being involved in the murders of Heidi and Urban. She was doing this either because she believed Donald was mistaken about what he had said, or perhaps she was covering for someone, creating an alibi, muddying the waters. I can't say for sure either way, but those are simply the facts of how it unfolded. I'll let you make up your own mind. There are a few key people in this case, and those are the ones who were present on the Taikato property in Heidi and Urban's presence in April of 1989. The biggest question has always been who. Who were these people? I think we can confidently say the list so far is Donald Turner, David Turner, Christine Hymona, Darren for a short time, and according to Darren, James Turner was there too, although this is something he denies. But in this story, there are two people whose names we haven't heard often. The man managing the farm at the time, Donald Turner Sr., and his partner, Glennis Taikato. Both Donald and Glennis have sadly passed away, so I can't ask them. But some time ago, I was speaking to a Whangamata local, Lynette, and we were discussing a completely different aspect of the case when it came to my attention that she knew Glennis. In fact, they went way, way back to primary school. And she could clearly remember their first encounter. Okay, why don't we go back and tell me, um, tell me again about how yeah, you met Glennis and, and that whole... <laughs> yeah. So you're from Whangamata, this is originally? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, well... Hamilton, then moved to Whangamata when I was 11. You know, my parents took me there when I was 11. And then, um, <clears throat> yeah, so when I went to school there, my first um, introduction to Glennis was when um, I was coming around a classroom and she was coming around the other side. And, you know, we sort of, and then we just sort of, it wasn't a collision, and she pushed me, you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, she just knocked me for a six and I went flat, flat on my back. And then, you know, I, I do remember just being shocked and looking up at her and she just like had this, you know, I, I had a smile on my face and then she just like put out a hand to pick me up and and ever since then we've been good friends. But yeah. How she was a bully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have heard that. Yeah. Um, but so, so you guys were friends yeah. through from that point on sort of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we were good friends ever since then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so although she had like this, sort of harsh exterior, yeah. you know, she could come across as having a harsh exterior, like a gruff exterior more so than harsh, um, you know, and um, same like with, with kids or actually, you know, any age, if you didn't do something right, you know, she'd say, get back here, do that again, you know, or whatever, <laughs> she'd say it in a real gruff voice, you know, but um, uh, yeah, so she, yeah, she's definitely a stickler for doing things right and always was. Um, and, um, yeah, but I mean, you know, with that gruff exterior, she had like a real soft interior and had that heart of gold, you know, especially if you knew her, 
yeah. yeah she just had a really big big loving heart but um but yeah no she yeah definitely so yeah, so how did you end up because you were living with her at one point there how did that all sort of in 2007 up? yeah yeah so tell me about that i i knew of her of her relationship with don yeah. uh and then like in 2007 Oh, so I was in a relationship which wasn't good and she intuitively knew that and then anyway she sort of felt to come around one time and she came around and she um, uh, that was like at the end of the relationship uh, just a few days after actually and so you know I laid everything on the table and she said what are you going to do and I went well I don't know <laughs> so um, she said well do you want to come live with me up at the farm yep. so I did and I went to live up there with her and I don't know how long we lived there for, but that was in the cottage. That wasn't in the main house, so the cottage wasn't there in 1989. Yeah. And, um, and while we were there, she just kind of said to me, she told me some things about Don Turner Sr. Yeah. And they weren't good things that he had done, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, gosh, how did you get mixed up in all of this when you're such a, a stickler for doing things right? But then I do remember that sometimes she didn't do things right. But they were real small things, you know, kind of like how some people would tell little white lies, or this was like little white, little white naughties yeah. sort of thing, you know, that went harmless. But, um, but yeah, and I just remember thinking, like, how did you get mixed up in all this? But anyway... So, but and I don't remember what she told me because I, you know, I just chose to forget all that. It's none of my business. Yeah. But um, but then she just sort of proceeded to say that I know some bad things about the Turners. Mm. And I don't remember if she said the Turner boys or whether she said the Turners. Yeah. And um, but she said straight after that, but I can't say. And it was like, okay. But I remember looking at her just in the, you know, like, in a, yeah, whatever it was wasn't good. Yeah, there was a bit of silence for a little while, you know. Yeah. Did you feel like she was, you could tell she's carrying something? Yeah. 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 I mean. And I could tell that she really wanted to say it, but she you know, probably thought it best that she didn't. And because she kind of knew me too, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, I'm kind of glad that she didn't, well, you know, with sort of stuff that's been coming up, but I'm kind of glad that she didn't tell me because I'm not really one to, yeah. you know, I would have, I would have, well. oh, I wouldn't have, I would have told someone. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Given everything I've heard in this case, about the Wild West atmosphere that seemed to inhabit this part of the world. Glennis referring to something bad the Turners have done could be anything. Or is it related to this case? Almost as if on cue, the day after I spoke to Lynette, my phone rang. And it was a very, very interesting call from a former Fongamata police officer and he wanted to tell me something important about Glennis. So I jumped in my car and drove out to Fongamata.
when I meet him, he has a confident, easygoing nature. And although he's not old, he's recently retired. When I ask him whether he's happy for his name to be public, he tells me he's got no problem with it. At the end of the day, this is the truth of what happened. Simple as that. I'm Craig Donaldson. I, um, I was a policeman in South Auckland for a few years, and then I um, transferred to Whangamata. And that was um, 2000, because I was here from 2000 to 2014. Um, so, yeah, I went to the Northern Territory Police in 2014 until 18 months ago. Okay. I come back and finished. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so... So it wasn't, so obviously, you know, at the time of the Swedes, you weren't here, but this was later on. No, this was later on, yeah. yeah. I was aware of the Swedes case in that, of course. Yeah. Um, I visited where they found Urban Hogland. We just did a four-wheel drive, um, like a, what would you call it, refresher course kind of thing up in the hills, just so that we would get used to the the uh, forestry roads and that. But, I mean, it's a spider's web up there, so it'd take more than a day on the four-wheel drive to sort of get much. Yeah. But we did visit that site. Yeah. Um, that's really as close as I ever got to anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, until... Now, I don't know if it was Glennis that I spoke to first or the woman that lived near David Tamahiri. As Craig said, he wasn't in the police in 1989 when the murders occurred. What he experienced didn't take place until the late 2000s and involved two separate events. One of which, occurring just prior to David Tamahiri's release from prison in 2010. So I guess, so, so take us, so this goes forward to when he was around, he was getting out of prison, was it? It was just before he was being released. Yeah. Um, that, so I'll go to the woman first. Yeah, yeah, start with um, yeah. So, yeah, I was just at station and a lady um, wanted to speak to a police officer and she's, so the front counter said, oh, well, Craig's here, you can have a chat to him. So she was really upset. Um, yeah, she was physically shaking. And um, she was terrified. And so I sat down, just briefly went through it with her. And she said that she was David Tamahiri's neighbour. And I assume that's neighbouring block from the yeah. Matori block up there. Yeah. Um, and knew him really well. Um, and she was walking her dog up Parakawai. And she saw the, a white, the white Sabaru. I don't remember if she said a white Sabaru or just a white station wagon. But, um, and they've passed right close to her. And Tamahiri was sitting in the, sitting in the car and the passenger side and he's looked at her and they've, their eyes have locked. And she said, he knew that it was her and she knew that it was him. You know, they knew each other really well. Now she was terrified that he was getting out and would probably, yeah. you know... That's what she thought, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. She didn't say he's going to come back and do anything to her, but she was just shitting that, yeah. that he was going to get out and, and possibly something bad would happen. Yeah. So, yeah, so I rung up... Like, we work one up here, so, you know, you wouldn't have a... a, a so, you're by yourself. Right, okay, yeah. Um, so there's no one else in the office. So I rung up um, the CIB... 
and um, said to the detective sergeant there, I said, hey, I've got this woman that um, you know wants to make a statement about um, David Tamahiri and what she knows and you know what happened up Parakawai Valley. And he just straight out said, mate, he's done his time. Um, doesn't mean anything anymore. And it's bugged me all these years because I, I actually told a lot of people, I've told a lot of people that because it's bugged me for a long time. And, um, and that's how I ended up hearing about your podcast because a couple of friends of mine said, hey, remember you, would, have you listened to this podcast? Remember what you told us about? They said, oh, you should give you know, yeah. Ryan a ring. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, I will. So I did. And because, um, I mean, naturally you would have heard Barry Lindsay describe almost the exact same thing. He said Tommy was driving, but he said he saw the car come down Prakawai Valley Road with the Swedes in it and Tommy and he said he just saw it drive. he was right there on the side of the road and he saw them and he looked at looked at him right in the face from like two metres away. Yeah, well that's, this is this is same the same thing. this is the same thing. She was close. Man, I'd love yeah. to know. If you're listening out there, whoever you are, <laughs> yeah. come find me. Yeah. Um <clears throat> Yeah, so that so I guess at the time, yeah, so they say, Hey, it's done his time and I guess there's some truth to that, I guess, but I mean, it, it also. I kind of could. I, I yeah. Right? I mean, I was a young constable then. Um, um, yeah. So that was that, and then so so she leaves, I guess, and you're like, hey, sorry, I can't help you, and off she goes. And off she goes. Yep. Yeah. Never spoke yeah. to her again. Well, obviously, we're getting this information from Craig, and not direct from the source, because we don't know who this woman is, and if it is you. Please contact me. But what Craig is telling me sounds very familiar. In light of what Barry Lindsay says he saw on that same road while fencing back in 1989. Some time ago, when new evidence connecting David Turner to this case came to light, I contacted Barry to confirm whether it may have been Turner he saw that day driving the car. Let's jump back to that phone call. I know the Turner side. You know, so you know them? Yeah. And it it wasn't him? No. Because David had longer hair or something? No, he was sort of rounder in the face. Okay. But uh, I I had such a good look at him, too. I know the the Tamahiris. I worked for them on the Matara block. Yeah. Because, see, one of them was an MP. Yeah. Yeah, you know. um, So you can positively say that was David. That was. Well, I saw photos of him, you know what I mean? This case is one which truly polarises the population. I cop abuse from both sides of the spectrum. The first half, vehemently arguing that David Tamahedi is innocent, and the other half, saying he's not. I came into this case with no bias either way. My goal was simply to find Heidi. The case against Tamahedi was always a circumstantial one. There was no direct evidence to suggest he was indeed the murderer. And he has always simply stated that he never met the Swedes. Simple as that. However, throughout my investigation, there's been a growing amount of evidence to suggest that he's lying. Donald Turner was always clear that Tamahedi was on the Taikato property with Heidi and her barn, and his brother Dave Turner. Barry Lindsay is unequivocal that it was Tamahedi he saw driving down Parakawai Quarry Road with the Swedes. And while it's unconfirmed, we have this unknown witness that told Fongamatar cop Craig she saw Tamahedi in the car with the Swedes on Parakawai Quarry Road 
from only two metres away, and that she recognised him as she knew him. But there was another witness who came into the Fongamataa police station to speak to Craig about this case. And unlike the one just mentioned, this one, Craig knew very well. It was Donald Turner Sr.'s partner in April of 1989. Glenis Taikato. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tell me about, oh, so how, so you lived here, did you say, from through 2002, 2014, and then how long before that? 2000, did you say? 2000, I arrived here. Okay, so yep. you, yeah. And so you knew Glennis. Yeah, I met Glennis really early. Awesome woman, just lovely lady. Yeah. Um, she was always around town. She used to call into the police station quite a bit. And um, she's one of those people, if you needed to know something, you could kind of, yeah. you know, catch up with her and she'd kind of give you a little bit of a lead in the right direction, you know? Yeah. So she was, she was quite pro-police. Pro yeah. She was popular with everyone at the station. Yeah. And pretty much everyone I knew. Everyone liked Lennis. Mm. She's a lovely, lovely woman. And in terms of what she, you know, I've heard she sort of had um, a bit of, you know, a, she was quite a stickler for people doing the things right. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Yeah. She was um, definitely, um, what would you say, law-abiding? No, just, just pro the right thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she had this loud, booming voice, you know. <laughs> you oh, wouldn't yeah. want to upset her. She'd be pretty probably hard to upset, but she was a strong woman. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And at yeah. the time that you sort of knew her from her coming and stuff, you guys got to know that she'd come and give you tips and stuff. And did they tend to be good tips, you know? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. She did. She didn't bullshit anyone. Yeah. You know, she was she was straight up and down. Yourself, yeah, she didn't make she didn't make stuff up. If she said, "Hey, Craig, this has happened," go, you'd be like, "Okay, there's probably something to this." Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 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 This is a story I've heard from every person I've ever spoken to about Glenis Taikato and her character. That she was a very strong woman, almost a bully, but that she had a strong moral compass and didn't lie. If Glenis told you something, you could take it to the bank. And Craig's respect for Glenis went beyond the occasional tip to police. Because according to Craig... If it weren't for her quick thinking one day, he likely wouldn't be here. And tell me about, um, there was one experience you told me about, she saved your life. Yeah, so I was working, it was sort of afternoon, probably, yeah, late afternoon. And um, so I got a call that there's a, um, so a couple of, what are you, iced up, pee freaks, whatever you want to, methed out come into town and back then opposite so it was the palms tavern um which is down well so the supermarket used to be on the corner of port and ocean road opposite the petrol station there that used to be a supermarket and so these guys two guys had gone into the supermarket and just loaded up um with food and all sorts of stuff and just walked out and um, one of the ladies at the counter, I remember because I took a statement from her, um, said, hey, well, you've know, you got to come back and pay for that. And one of the guys slapped her on the ass and said, what are you going to do about it, fatty? I remember that clearly. And then they've left. So a call come in, look out for this um, red Honda Civic or something it was back then. I can't remember. Mazda, maybe Ford Laser, um, small car. And I saw it. I was driving around town looking for it. And I saw it parked up down by the roundabout on Hunt in Martin Road, so the other end of town, um, used to be a fish and chip shop down there. But they weren't at the fish and chip shop. They were, I saw the, the two guys down the road. and But I'd parked up my, my, I was in the work ute, the police ute, four-wheel drive. So I parked up the road and started to walk back and they'd seen me. I, that's when I, we sort of locked eyes and they, they, they run to the car and I run to their car as well. And they were close as they got in before I did. And I've opened the driver's door and I thought he'd be trying to get the keys in the ignition. Like it was almost immediately that they were in and closed the door that I opened it. But the keys were already in the ignition. So he's just turned it on, whacked it in reverse and gone backwards. So the driver's door that was open has knocked me over. So I was holding on like in the floor well by the driver's seat and holding on to the door. And I was on my back sliding along the road going backwards. It went about 50 feet. And then... We hit a roundabout or something because the car bounced up on my side and I got spat out under the car. And so I was lying there, stunned, and I just heard, I didn't even know Glenis was there, just appeared from somewhere. Um, she had a unit, there used to be a flats up there, she had a unit up there for a while, I don't know if she's renting it or something. She was, may have she walked out of that, but I just heard this, Craig, get off the fucking road. And, and Glenis could could get her voice up there and it kind of it just snapped me out of lying on the road and I've dived out the way when they've tried to run me over coming back front ways so I've jumped in my car I didn't realise but something had gone through my leg at the bottom split it open but 
the adrenaline was pumping out, so I just jumped on the four-wheel drive and I chased them. But the four-wheel drive wasn't keeping up with the air car, but they had a couple of roundabouts on the way out of town. And then they got to, I can't remember if it was Matter Matter or Morrinsville, but um, a couple of police were sitting on the side of the road there and the car's gone past with two red-hot rims sparking off the... So they, they picked them up for that. But yeah, so that's Glenn has saved my life for sure. So, so that's what I was going to say. So you can, if she hadn't called out, they would have hit you full noise. Yeah, we are already good mates before that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she's a better mate after that. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah. yeah, so definitely owed her one. Yeah, well, because, you know, there's a lot of people out there that certain parts of society that would just let someone run a cop over, you know? Yeah. No, 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 it's not her. Not she, her. She's, nah, she's a good person. Yeah. Yep, yep. Like I said, everyone I've spoken to has painted Glennis as being a tough nut. Someone that can handle herself. Which is why the day that she came into the station, upset and scared, is a day Craig can vividly remember. And then so Love tell, me, tell me about when she, um, when she came into the station that day. Yeah, she come in and this is the thing about her. She was... You know you get someone that's really strong, but you know they've got a bit of a soft side? Yeah. yeah. Um, she definitely had that, you know, that heart of gold soft side in her. And I'd never seen her upset, but she came into the police station that day and she was she was upset and she was scared. She was shake, shaking, you know, her voice is quivering and that. And she was, so this is where it was really you. brief, you know. Um, she, it was almost... We were good mates, so it wasn't like her coming in to make a complaint. You know, she just wanted someone to talk to and just say, hey, look, she was scared. But she said that Tamahiri didn't murder the Swedes alone. Um, Well, I say murder the Swedes. Well, he wasn't alone in whatever happened. Um, She said there was someone else. And she said that person she knew very well. Now, I, I... don't remember exactly what she said her relationship was Um, but um, that person after the murders soon after it the house that they were staying in burnt down yeah okay and then um, they left the country straight away and that person was coming back and that's what she was scared of and and what was your thought when you saw Glennis kind of shaken oh she was she was terrified. Yep. Um, yeah. She was. She was worried. And what did you? You must have thought Jesus. But I mean, I guess you'd have well, like, what's she talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was. It was one of those. Well, all I said was, "Look, just ring us any time." Yeah. I don't really recall whether she was sort of holding back a little bit. Um, I don't think she actually mentioned names at all no, back she then. Wouldn't have. No. So like, yeah, so yeah. She wasn't coming in to like make a report. She was just. Yeah. Did you do anything she, with that information at the time? No, no, she didn't want anything done with it. Yeah. She just wanted us to be aware that, you know, yeah, right, that if she, if, if she rings up yeah. and she's worried about something, we'll, you know, take it seriously. Because that would have been, so was that around 2009, around the same time as the other lady came in? That was was a hard, it's a hard part to get the exact date. I wouldn't even put a year on it. So if I was here for... So, no, I left in 2014, yeah. so it was somewhere around the middle. It could have okay, been, so, could have been yeah. 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 Well, so... Seven-ish. 
when Glennis came into the station that day, she wasn't there to make an official statement. She was there to tell Craig, as a friend, that she was scared. And to warn him that if something went down, it should be taken seriously. Because no official statement was taken, Craig can't be sure exactly what year this took place, but puts it around 2007-2008. While we don't know who the person is that Glennis was referring to, Dave Turner returned back to New Zealand in 2009 after 15 years overseas. So was this the person she claims was involved in the Swedes murders and that she was so scared of? Mm, so you've just sort of carried that this whole time thinking, you know, you must have always just thought, shit, what was she, you know, what was she saying? Because everyone knew the Tamahiri case. Yeah, you know? I think, I, you know, at the time, I think it was just pushed so much that it was just him. Yeah. Like, the, all this other information wasn't even there then. Mm. So. Yeah. You have to think about it that Glennis comes and tells you that, but you've got no other information. No other information, nothing. It's just like, oh, you, you know, you just sort of, yeah, radio. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't think too much of it at all. Yeah. It was just so unlike her, yeah. you know? She'd been cruising along all that time, bubbly, happy around town, nothing wrong, and then just shitting herself. I'd always believed that Glennis was likely my best chance to find the truth. But as she has passed away, I'd been searching for that person that perhaps she may have confided in. But it had seemed that whatever she did know, she had kept locked away. As revealing as Craig's statement had been, it was equally frustrating. Had she seen something out on that Taikato farm back in April of 1989? And what was it that Glennis was so scared of? Would I ever get that answer? Incredibly, I would. One afternoon, a few months back, I received a call from someone who wishes to remain anonymous. But I can confirm that they were close to Glennis and are a credible source. And what this person told me made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. For clarity, I've edited the content of this person's information to the key points, and for their privacy, this has been read by an actor. Okay, I'm only passing on a witness's story here, but... um, Glennis and her boyfriend were living on a farm... Her boyfriend was Don Turner Sr. And it was probably like 91, 92, something like that, that Glennis' dad, Pat, had said to me, this thing with these Swedish people, you know, you should speak to Glennis about that. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, she knows what happened to them because she was there that night. So when I asked her, she said, oh, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't my business, you know. I said, yeah, but did you see them up there? Do you, do you know that they were there? And she goes, don't ask me. I said, I'm asking you because you were up there, living there, you know. And then all these years, 
I've always known that, you know, something's been hidden in her, you know, and she just, she just couldn't get it out, you know. So she passed away last year, but um, before she passed away, I had a bit of a chat with her because I remember about six years ago, she was wanting to tell me something, but then she didn't. And then... Not on her deathbed, but a couple of days before she passed away, I guess she maybe knew she was going. She rang me and she said, I want to tell you what happened to those backpackers. So she says that the night in question, uh, Donald Turner Sr. and his son David Turner, um, David Tamahiri and a few other people came up to the farm with the backpackers for a party, you know, getting on the piss and, and stuff. And they were all partying all night um, under a willow tree up near the main house. And Don Sr. and Glennis went to bed about 2am. I think Heidi and the others were passed out or pretty messed up on drugs or whatever. But Glennis woke up early about 5am and saw the two Davids driving away up the back of the farm with the Swedish boy. And then they returned without him. And then they got in the car about mid-morning, lunchtime, with the girl, and then they disappeared. And I believe they had her all messed up on drugs and shit, and she was probably in no state to really know what was going on. And when she passed out, they got rid of the boy. And David Tamahiri was with David Turner all that night, and they both left together with the girl. I guess at some stage... She would have started to recover and would have wondered what was going on, you know, like, where's my boyfriend, you know? And they can't explain it because they've already knocked him off. But yeah, so Glennis at the time, she didn't know what was happening, but she said, I never saw them again, those Swedish people. And then I found out something bad had happened. And then she got death threats from David Turner that if she ever said anything, he'd shoot her. I'd been asking her for about the last five years what happened out at the farm and she just didn't want to talk about it, you know. And so, yeah, I'd, I don't even know if she knew um, that she was going to die, but after that phone call, two days later, she collapsed suddenly. So, yeah, I guess she held on to it for all that time. The ripple effects of this case extend far beyond the tragic murders of Heidi and Oban. When I spoke to one of Glennis's family members recently, they were shocked when they came to the realisation that Friday, April 7th, 1989, was actually Glennis's birthday. It seems Glennis Taikato carried the immense weight of this secret for 30 years before her death and others carry secrets still. Who were the other people partying at the house that night? What did they see? And what secrets do they keep? Many months ago, I was contacted by an anonymous source who said they spoke to Darren Lindsay many years ago and claimed Darren had told him that David Tamahedi had arrived in Parakawai with the Swedes 
wanting to sell a set of bull bars. Something Darren neglected to tell me on the one occasion we spoke. And that's what I've had to navigate throughout this investigation. Half-truths and flat-out lies. The sheer number of people I've interviewed and the volume of information I've compiled goes far beyond the scope of what you've heard in this podcast. I've presented what I believe is a fair, balanced account of what took place and have included interviews from each side of the story and let you make up your own mind about who you can trust and what you think took place. As I've said before, I don't personally believe every story you've heard in its entirety. Some, I know, have not been 100% truthful. But hidden in this fog, I believe the truth can indeed be found. And so now, I'd like to present my theory. My opinion of what I believe took place based on the hundreds of hours of interviews and research over the last seven months working this case full-time. Let me be clear that I don't have all the answers, and there are many elements I simply can't explain, so I don't try to. And then there are other things that I'm aware of, other evidence I've uncovered, that I'm not going to share, as my investigation is ongoing. Ultimately, this is just my theory, my opinion, and nothing more. On April 4th, 1989, Heidi Parkinen and Sven Urban Hoglund spend their last night in a paid campsite. When they soak up the thermal hot pools at the Omokoroa campground near Tauranga, On the morning of April 5th, they wake and drive 40 minutes up the east coast of New Zealand until they reach the gateway to the Coromandel, the small town of Waihee. Not knowing what amenities would be available for the next few days, here they stop at the ATM where they withdraw cash and also visit the local New World grocery store where they're seen walking the aisles. Leaving town, they inadvertently take the wrong exit and stop at Purcell Panel Works, where they ask for directions to their next planned stop, Fongamata. Continuing up the coast, a small settlement appears on the right, Furutoa. They decide to stop for a look, and following the main street leads to a stunning beach. And as they have no set plan, they decide to stay here for the night, and find a grassy area to set up their tent at the end of Moray Place, where they spend the night listening to the waves crashing on the beach, only metres away. On the morning of April 6th, Joyce, a local resident, is taking her usual walk down the beach to get her morning newspaper, when she sees Heidi and her barn packing up their gear into the back of their white station wagon. She notes that despite it feeling a bit cold, the blonde girl is dressed in only shorts and a t-shirt. Later that morning, Joyce and a group of friends, including Mary Williams, see Heidi and Urban standing beside their car, looking out at the sea near the Furutoa Surf Club. Joyce again sees the couple further up the coast in the small town of Whangamata, 
leaving the small grocery shop and buying petrol. The couple decide to spend the night in the Fongamatai area before continuing along State Highway 25 towards Thames on the morning of Friday, April 7th, 1989. David Tamahedi has been on the run from police since he jumped bail in 1986 for the rape of an Auckland woman. He spent a majority of that time walking the backcountry forest trails of the Coromandel, from Firatoa to Fongamata and Thames. Around April 3rd, 1989, he comes over the wires track and down into the Wentworth Valley, where he is seen by mountain bikers in the area. Tamahedi has a semi-permanent camp hidden in the bush in the Wentworth area, and he often stops here to resupply. On this occasion, he stops as he usually does for a few days, before deciding to continue on the forest trail from Wentworth Valley to the north, where he eventually emerges out of the forest onto State Highway 25 on the morning of Friday, April 7th. He sticks out his thumb and decides to hitchhike the rest of the way to Thames, a nearby town he often stays. Appearing over the hill, Tamahedi sees a small white station wagon, which pulls over. He throws his pack in the back and hops in the back seat of the car. At approximately 10.30am, Murray Jeffries is doing his usual Friday courier route and is pulling out of one of his delivery sites after having morning smoko with the staff. As he pulls out, he waits as a white station wagon drives slowly past. He notes the bull bars on the vehicle and recognises the blonde girl in the car as the same one he saw days earlier in Rotorua. Another young man is driving the vehicle while she leans back, speaking to a rough-looking mouldy man sitting in the back seat. As the car drives past, he notes the packs in the back and has the impression that the couple must have picked this man up hitchhiking. Heidi and Urban note that David Tamahedi, who they picked up hitchhiking on State Highway 25, is a wealth of knowledge of the history of the area. He offers to guide them around, and they agree, but first plan to do a couple things in the town of Thames, like post their last letter home and get their hair cut in the early afternoon. When they meet back up, Tamahedi notes that they're selling their car and leaving the country soon. He says he knows someone who owns the same model vehicle as this, who would likely be very keen to buy the unique bull bars on Heidi and Urban's car. It's only an hour's drive from here, it has a beautiful camping spot, and there's also the opportunity to buy some marijuana and have a good time. Later that afternoon, they drive down Parakawai Quarry Road, where they go slowly past Barry Lindsay as he finishes up a day's fencing and another woman walking her dog down the road recognises Tamahedi as he drives past with the Swedes. The trio park near the end of the road, beside a ford, and remove items needed for an overnight stay. They walk a short distance up the forest road and set up their tent for the night, after which they jump back in the car and drive up to the main house on the Taikato farm, where they meet the Turners and chat about the proposed sale of the bull bars. As night falls, the group party outside, drinking and smoking marijuana. It's Glenis Taiketo's birthday. At some point during the night, things take a turn. Hard drugs, 
likely given with sinister intentions, render the young couple largely incapacitated. And throughout the night, both David Tamahiri and David Turner take full advantage of this situation. Sometime in the early hours, when Heidi and others are passed out, Glenis Taikato wakes and witnesses David Turner, David Tamahiri, and Urban driving away up the back of the farm in Donald Turner Sr.'s white station wagon. Sometime later, they return to the house on foot and without Urban, having left the vehicle parked up in the bush near where they have just murdered him. Darren Lindsay would see this vehicle parked up in this area over the following days and would note it looked creepy. Willie Taikato would claim that he stole items from the car after being told not to. At some point in the morning, Heidi wakes to find her barn gone. The two Davids concoct a story that explains Urban's absence and that they'll need to go look for him. They convince Heidi to go with them in Urban and Heidi's station wagon and they leave Parakawai. To keep up with the story that they're looking for Urban, they stop at the Fongamata pub where a puffy-eyed Heidi is led inside and seeing no Urban, they quickly leave. Rodney Topaki, sitting in the pub at the time, notes the strange event and sees the Subaru leave and heads south towards Furatoa. Over the course of the weekend, a plan is hatched to divert the authorities' attention away from the true events and towards an area Heidi and Urban had planned to hike at the end of Tararu Creek Road. Multiple witnesses living on Tararu Creek Road note a white Subaru coming and going over the weekend and it is seen parked at the end of the road on the afternoon of Sunday, April 9th, before finally it appears on Monday the 10th of April at the Sunkiss Lodge, being driven by David Tamahiri. Like I said, this is just a theory. Based on the evidence that I've gathered, And personally, I don't like to get drawn into trying to ascertain exactly what happened and in what order in a perfect timeline. Because it requires too much speculation and there's just too much that we don't know. But the feedback I get from you is that I understand you like to hear a theory from me. So I hope that helps. But overall, this is just a very loose outline of what may have happened. Unless those involved come forward to tell the truth, then much will remain speculation, a sometimes impossible task of logically connecting known events together. Ultimately, there are elements I feel very confident about, like the fact Heidi and Urban were on the farm, that they were partying with a group of people, including Tamahedi and Turner, and that Urban was killed first, before the pair left with Heidi. Then there are other elements which are more hazy, like what happened after they left, and where did they go. 
There are also a number of other elements which I haven't explained here, like the possible sighting in Kauronga Valley, but I will add that I do believe the sighting in Crosby's clearing is connected to this case, which explains why this couple never came forward. However, I don't believe the woman in Crosby's clearing was Heidi, but could have been another blonde woman connected to this case, who wore a lot of makeup. But I'll admit that the Tararu Creek Road and Crosby's clearing elements of this case still pose a lot of questions, and are largely a mystery to me as to how they fit the bigger picture. It's also possible the couple may have arrived in Thames on April 6th, not April 7th. And what about Firatoa? It's a place that has grown on my radar of late, but has in fact been there the whole time. Because throughout my investigation of this case, I've been told time and time again by those that I should pay attention to that Heidi's remains will be found there. So to wrap up this season of guilt, I jumped in my car and headed back to the Coromandel and back to this small beach town where I spoke to someone who recalled something that took place in April of 1989 that blew me away. This person wishes to remain anonymous and I've paraphrased our conversation for time and clarity. I was in Waihi. Must have been early April 1989 and I actually saw the Swedish couple. It must have been at the bank or something. They were standing on the street and I noticed her because of the shorts she was wearing. They looked like jean dress shorts. They had a stiff pleat style on the shorts. They weren't too short but yeah that's what I remembered. Anyway it was some weeks later. I was in my boat down at Furatoa, near the cliffs. And I looked up, and high on the rocks, I saw those shorts, the denim ones she was wearing. They were stuck on a rock high up. The spot they were was way above the waterline, so there's absolutely no way they could have washed or blown up there. Someone must have thrown them off the top, and they'd gotten caught up on a rock. And I can remember it vividly. They were snagged like on a big rock sticking out, you know. And the thing that got me was the way they were sitting. One of the legs was sticking straight out stiff, you know, like almost like a flag. But I recognized them straight away. They were the same ones that girl had been wearing in Waihi. The thing with this location is... To throw those off there just makes no sense other than something bad, you know. The bush leads right up to the cliff face and it's a dangerous area. Not a place that the public would be wandering along. Maybe just the odd hunter. So a couple days later I took my dogs and I went up there for a hunt and to have a look. And the shorts were gone. They must have fallen off into the ocean. But I searched three to four hundred metres around that area and Never found sign of anything else. But I'm not saying that these shorts looked similar. 
they were her shorts. And I'm positive on that. And I've always been 100% positive. My memory is not as good as it once was, but I've always had the picture of those shorts stuck in my mind. And I'm convinced, as are many locals, that that's the spot that poor girl met her fate. When I spoke to this person, I said, okay, so you think these shorts you saw looked similar, and they cut me off. And with a confidence that I rarely see, simply said, no. They were the same shorts. It's as simple as that. People can say what they want, but I know what I saw. If this person came out of the blue with this information, I'd be skeptical. But it's the location of the sighting that rattled me. The exact spot this person says they saw the shorts is in an area of extremely steep and unforgiving cliffs next to Furatoa. Rugged bush runs to the edge of the cliffs. There is no direct public access. It really is difficult to imagine any reasonable explanation as to how a pair of denim shorts would end up in this location. Well, back in April of 1989, there was one track of sorts. And if you were to follow it back up through the bush, from the cliff face, for about 500 metres, you'd come across a small structure. A shack. In the bush. And it's a place I've been before because it's the very same shack that Rodney Topaki says he saw the Subaru parked. The same Subaru he says he saw leave the pub with Heidi. When I spoke to the person that saw the shorts, they'd never listened to the podcast and had no idea about what Rodney says he saw in that area. Either story on its own is interesting but both of these together independent of each other now that is one hell of a coincidence during this investigation I've spent literally hundreds and hundreds of hours interviewing countless witnesses sometimes the information I receive is appreciated but not relevant Other times it's good, and sometimes it's great. And then there are those other interviews, where my hair stands up on the back of my neck. When I put the phone down, I say, fuck. And I had one of these moments, when I spoke to David Turner's sister Frankie, many months ago. When she told me something... I haven't been able to forget. Frankie has seen a tough life and her fair share of drugs and violence and it comes through when you speak to her. We spoke at length about her life and some of their family difficulties growing up and I'm not going to share that. But there was one thing she wanted to tell me and that was something David had told her all those years ago when she asked him directly 
where he'd put Heidi. Frankie speaks fast and loose, and some may find her a bit difficult to follow. But I want you to hear the words out of her mouth. Hang on, just sit down in the driver's seat here. Good evening. Hey, how are you? Always, always good. I only know, like, father, whatever dirt he had on that detective, he took it to the grave. My dad, and it must be some juicy dirt to cover the sins of the sons. Um, I had the misfortune of, when Bear did leave the country on that false passport, I did ask him briefly, where is she? Now, he said the dunes are very tall. Now, the, the landscape has changed in 30 years and stuff, but that is what he said. But that's what Bear said to you? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's what he said. wrong to know was, where is she? Yeah. And, and, did, and you, said, and did you feel like he was telling you the truth? Uh, there's times that we were blatantly, rudely honest with each other. Just trying to think of, you know, everything that you know about, you know, what that you heard or whatever about, you know, the Heidi and her bar. Yeah. See, that, that's the hardest part, right? Is, like, the dunes back then, um, the weather, different things, especially being through tour. Um, 30 years ago, it was quite rugged to even get to the beach through tour. It wasn't, you know, the, it wasn't sort of like the, the white sand side of Whangamata compared to the country side. Um, uh, so, so you said to him, where did you put her? No, 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 no I asked, where is she? Just tell me where she is. It's long to know where she Okay, so so, it's far, so, he, so when he told you that Fittatoa thing, you felt like that he was telling you the truth? Well, well, there are times I would hope so. Um, I don't, I don't waste my time bullshitting. If we're going to waste my time bullshitting, then I don't believe anyone else. There are times when he's been real and what he's done, and maybe slightly regretted it later. But uh... Frankie claims that when she asked her brother David where Heidi was, he told her the Firatoa Dunes, meaning sand dunes. My first thought was that he could have just been making this up. But according to Frankie, sometimes they would be brutally honest with each other about fucked up things. And she believes he was telling her the truth. If you'll recall, when I spoke to David, he told me that Tamahiri went north with Heidi. Well, that would be the opposite direction to the Firatoa Dunes. So which statement would we expect to be more likely to be true? The one he tells his sister in confidence, or the one he tells me? Frankie claims that she asked him this as she was dropping him at the airport when he left the country on a false passport in 1994. Since my brief initial on-the-record conversation with David Turner, which you heard in episode 15, The Diary and the Bear, we've spoken a couple times on the phone off the record and have exchanged many messages. 
Our conversation primarily has revolved around David's anger that I've brought his family name into disrepute and that all my witnesses are lying. Since my initial call, he refuses to speak to me about anything relevant to this case over the phone. He says he only wants to meet face to face to speak. But on the two occasions I've tried to facilitate this, he's backed out. His most recent reason was that he wouldn't allow me to bring a person as security to the meeting. His messages have progressively become more threatening, but my response has been consistent. When he's ready to speak to me about the truth of this case, if he wants to clear his name, I'm ready to listen. But as of our most recent conversation, that doesn't look likely to happen. So then what of David Tamahedi? The man that has already served 21 years for the murders of Heidi and Urban. It would seem that Tamahedi remained steadfast with his criminal code of silence. But could that be about to change? I've kept my distance from Tamahedi throughout this investigation as he has an ongoing appeal and I knew the chances of an interview was zero. But as his appeal process is soon coming to an end, I'm going to open the door to this possibility. And when he no longer has anything left to lose, is it possible the truth may finally come forth? As I've said, this is the final official episode of this season. But my investigation continues, and I can assure you that recent developments have me more excited than ever that with your help I may finally achieve my original goal and find Heidi. But for now, I'm going to sign off this season of guilt on the very beach whose dunes could hold the answer I've been looking for. Just coming down the, just walked down to Furatoa Beach and I'm sure Heidi and Urban probably, they would have for sure they would have walked down to this beach and I don't know, maybe had a swim. And I'm looking back down to the southern end of the beach which abruptly changes from beach into jagged cliff faces and thick native New Zealand bush. And, you know, based on this new evidence, you know, I start to wonder if, you know, is that the direction that that Heidi may have been taken. Yeah, 
Yeah, so... I mean, effectively, right now is the end of, of the official episodes of season three of Guilt, Finding Heidi. I say the official end because there will be at least one more episode which will cover our upcoming search. Uh, we've got some new areas to search, obviously including Furatoa. In terms of the actual free episodes coming out weekly, you know, they had, they had to stop at some time and, and now it's kind of that time. And The subscribers, there will be some sporadic content coming out before season four starts. But yeah, I mean, even though the podcast for this season may be over, I'll still be taking calls and I'll still be chasing leads my investigation won't stop it's just that I'll stop turning that into content so if you have information connected to this case please reach out but yeah I guess uh, I guess that's, that's it really in terms of terms of this season and just want to thank you all so much for coming on the journey and it has been a hell of a journey it really has you know and I can't say I have all the answers I don't have all the answers at all but I think I've been able to pretty clearly show that the truth of this case lies on this side of the Coromandel Um, you know to Heidi's family and her Barnes family out there as well that you know I listening to this it's you know I'm sorry we haven't I haven't been able to find find her yet um, and it's not that God it's not that we're not that I'm not trying like we're really really trying and we're not going to give up now opened a real can of worms here and and I'm not going to give up and you know the New Zealand public aren't going to give up either yeah okay Thank you. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that, opinions, and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent, unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Dean Young. You'll find further photos and videos on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ. Remember, there will be two further episodes covering David Tamahiti's appeal, which will be available only for subscribers. I'd like to thank you all for your support this season. 
And in the next season, I'll be covering a brand new case in Australia. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast+. Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.